This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Methuselah. Ulysses by James Joyce. Part 2, The Odyssey. Episode 12, Cyclops, Part 2. In the darkness, spirit hands were felt to flutter, and when prayer by Tantras had been directed to the proper quarter, a faint but increasing luminosity of ruby light became gradually visible, the apparition of the etheric double being particularly lifelike, owing to the discharge of jivic rays from the crown of the head and face. Communication was effected through the pituitary body, and also by means of the orange fiery and scarlet rays emanating from the sacral region and solar plexus. Questioned by his earth name as to his whereabouts in the heaven world, he stated that he was now on the path of prelia or return, but was still submitted to trial at the hands of certain bloodthirsty entities on the lower astral levels. In reply to a question as to his first sensations in the Great Divide beyond, he stated that previously he had seen as in a glass darkly, but that those who had passed over had summit possibilities of atomic development opened up to them. Interrogated as to whether life there resembled our experience in the flesh, he stated that he had heard from more favoured beings now in the spirit that their abodes were equipped with every modern home comfort, such as Talafana, Alavatar, Hatakalda, Wataklazat, and that the highest adepts were steeped in waves of volupsy of the very purest nature. Having requested a quart of buttermilk, this was brought and evidently afforded relief. Asked if he had any message for the living, he exhorted all who were still at the wrong side of Maya to acknowledge the true path, for it was reported in divanic circles that Mars and Jupiter were out for mischief on the eastern angle where the ram has power. It was then queried whether there were any special desires on the part of the defunct, and the reply was, We greet you, friends of Earth, who are still in the body. Mind CK doesn't pile it on. It was ascertained that the reference was to Mr. Cornelius Kelleher, manager of Messrs. H. J. O'Neill's popular funeral establishment, a personal friend of the defunct, who had been responsible for carrying out the internment arrangements. Before departing, he requested that it should be told to his dear son Patsy that the other boot, which he had been looking for, was at present under the commode in the return room, and that the pair should be sent to Cullen's to be sold, only as the heels were still good. He stated that this had greatly perturbed his peace of mind in the other region and earnestly requested that his desire should be made known. Assurances were given that the matter would be attended to and it was intimated that this had given satisfaction. He is gone from mortal haunts, O Dignan, son of our morning. Fleet was his foot on the bracken, Patrick of the beamy brow. Wail, Bonba, with your wind, and wail, O ocean, with your whirlwind. There he is again! says the citizen, staring out. Who? says I. Bloom, says he. He's on point duty up and down there for the last ten minutes. And begob I saw his Fizog do a peep in and then slide her off again. Little Alf was knocked by ways. Fate he was. Good Christ, says he. I could have sworn it was him. And says Bob Doran, with the hat on the back of his pole, lowest blackguard in Dublin when he's under the influence. Who said Christ is good? I beg your pardon, Snips, says Alf. Is that a good Christ, says Bob Doran, to take away poor little Willie Dignam? Ah, oh, well, says Alf, trying to pass it off. He's over all his troubles. But Bob Doran shouts out of him. He's a bloody ruffian, I say, to take away poor little Willie Dignam. 
Terry came down and tipped him the wink to keep quiet, that they didn't want that kind of talk in respectable licensed premises. And Bob Doran starts doing the weeps about Paddy Dignam. True as you're there. The finest man, says he, snivelling. The finest, purest character. The tear is bloody near your eye, talking through his bloody hat. Fitter for him to go home to the little sleepwalking bitch he married, Mooney, the bomb bailiff's daughter. Mother kept in a kip in Hardwick Street that used to be stravaging about the landings. Bantam Lyons told me that was stopping there at two in the morning without a stitch on her, exposing her person, opened all corners, fair field and no favour. The noblest, the truest, says he, and he's gone. Poor little Willie, poor little Paddy Dignam. And mournful and with heavy heart he bewept the extinction of that beam of heaven. Old Gary Owen started growling again at Bloom that was skeezing round the door. Come in, come on, he won't eat you, says the citizen. So Bloom slopes in with his cod's eye on the dog, and he asks Terry, was Martin Cunningham there? Oh, Christ McKeown, says Joe, reading one of the letters. Listen to this, will you? And he starts reading one out. Seven Hunter Street, Liverpool, to the High Sheriff of Dublin. Dublin. Honoured sir, I beg to offer my services in the above-mentioned painful case. I hanged Joe Gann in Bootle Jail on the 12th of February, 1900. And I hanged, show us, Joe, says I, Private Arthur Chase for foul murder of Jesse Tilsit in Pentonville Prison. And I was assistant when, Jesus, says I, Billington executed the awful murderer Toad Smith. The citizen made a grab at the letter. Hold hard, says Joe. I have a special knack of putting the noose. Once in, he can't get out. Hoping to be honoured, I remain honoured, sir. My term is five guineas. H. Rumbold, Master Barber. And a barbarous bloody barber he is, too, says the citizen. And the dirty scrawl of the wretch, says Joe. Here, says he. Take them to hell out of my sight, Alf. Low Bloom, says he. What will you have? So they started arguing about the point. Bloom saying he wouldn't, and he couldn't. And excuse him, no offence and all that. And he said, well, he'd just take a cigar. Gobby's a prudent member and no mistake. Give us one of your prime stinkers, Terry, says Joe. And Alf was telling us there was one chap sent in a morning card with a black border round it. They're all barbers, says he, from the black country that would hang their own fathers for five quid down in travelling expenses. And he was telling us there's two fellas waiting below to pull his heels down when he gets the drop and choke him properly. And then they chop up the rope after and sell the bits for a few bob of skull. In the dark land they bide the vengeful knights of the razor. Their deadly coil they grasp, yea, and therein they lead to Erebus, whatsoever white hath done a deed of blood, for I will on no wise suffer it even so, saith the Lord. So they started talking about capital punishment, and of course Bloom comes out with the why and the wherefore and all the codology of the business, and the old dogs smelling them all the time. I'm told those Jewies does have a sort of queer odour coming off them for the dogs, about I don't know what all deterrent effect and so forth and so on. There's one thing that hasn't a deterrent effect on, says Alf. What's that, says Joe. The poor bugger's tool that's being hanged, says Alf. That's so, says Joe. God's truth, said Alf. I heard that from the head warder that was in Kilmainham when they hanged Joe Brady the Invincible. He told me when they cut him down after the drop, it was standing up in their faces like a poker. Ruling passion strong in death, says Joe, as someone said. That can be explained by science, says Bloom. It's only a natural phenomenon, don't you see? Because on account of the... And he starts with his jawbreakers about phenomenon and science and this phenomenon, the other phenomenon. The distinguished scientist, Herr Professor Lutpold Blumenduft, 
tendered medical evidence to the effect that the instantaneous fracture of the cervical vertebrae and the consequent scission of the spinal cord would, according to the best approved tradition of medical science, be calculated to inevitably produce in the human subject a violent ganglionic stimulus of the nerve centres of the genital apparatus, thereby causing the elastic pores of the corpora cavernosa to rapidly dilate in such a way as to instantaneously facilitate the flow of blood to that part of the human anatomy known as the penis, or the male organ, resulting in the phenomenon, which has been denominated by the faculty, a morbid upwards and outwards phyloprogenitive erection, in articula mortis per diminutionem capitis. So, of course, the citizen was only waiting for the wink at a word, and he starts gassing out of him about the Invincibles and the Old Guard and the man of 67, and who fears to speak of 98, and Joe with him about all the fellas that were hanged, drawn, and transported for the cause by drumhead court-martial, and a new Ireland, a new this, that, and the other. Talking about a new Ireland, he ought to go and get a new dog, so he ought. Mangy, ravenous brute, sniffing and sneezing all round the place and scratching his scabs, and round he goes to Bob Duran that was standing alpha half a one, sucking up for what he could get. So, of course, Bob Doran starts doing the bloody fool with him. Give us the paw. Give the paw, doggy. Good old doggy. Give the paw here. Give us the paw. Ah, bloody end of the paw. He'd paw an elf trying to keep him from tumbling off the bloody stool atop the bloody old dog, and he talking all kinds of drivel about training by kindness and thoroughbred dog and intelligent dog. Give you the bloody pip. Then he starts scraping a few bits of old biscuit out of the bottom of a Jacob's tin he told Terry to bring. Gobby galloped it down like old boots and his tongue hanging out of him a yard long for more. Near ate the tin and all, hungry bloody mongrel. And the citizen and Bloom having an argument about the point, the brothers Shears and Wolf Tone beyond on Arbor Hill and Robert Emmett and Dyfear Country, the Tommy Moore touch about Sarah Curran and she's far from the land, and Bloom, of course, with his knock-me-down cigar, putting on swank with his lardy face. Phenomenon. The fat heap he married is a nice old phenomenon, with a back on her like a ball alley. Time they were stopping up in the city arms, Pisser Burke told me there was an old one there with a cracked looter arm and of a nephew, and Bloom trying to get the soft side of her, doing the molly cuddle, playing bezique to come in for a bit of the wampum in her will, and not eating meat of a Friday because the old one was always thumping her craw and taking the lout out for a walk. And one time he led him the rounds of Dublin, and by the holy farmer he never cried crack till he brought him home as drunk as a boiled owl, and he said he did it to teach him the evils of alcohol, and by herrings if the tree woman didn't near roast him. It's a queer story, the old one, Bloom's wife, and Mrs. O'Dowd that kept a hotel. Jesus, I had to laugh at Pisser Burke taking them off chewing the fat, and Bloom with his, but don't you see, and but on the other hand. And sure more betokened the lout I'm told was in powers after, the blenders, round in Cope Street, going home footless in a cab five nights in the week after drinking his way through all the samples in the bloody establishment. Phenomenon. The memory of the dead, says the citizen, taking up his pint glass and glaring at Bloom. Aye, aye, says Joe. You don't grasp my point, says Bloom. What I mean is Shin Fein, says the citizen. Shin Fein Awan. The friends we love are by our side, and the foes we hate before us. The last farewell was affecting in the extreme. From the belfries far and near, the funereal death-bell tolled unceasingly, while all around the gloomy precincts rolled the ominous warning of a hundred muffled drums, punctuated by the hollow booming pieces of ordnance. 
the deafening claps of thunder and the dazzling flashes of lightning which lit up the ghastly scene testified that the artillery of heaven had lent its supernatural pomp to the already gruesome spectacle. A torrential rain poured down from the floodgates of the angry heavens upon the bared heads of the assembled multitude, which numbered at the lowest computation 500,000 persons. A posse of Dublin Metropolitan Police, superintended by the chief commissioner in person, maintained order in the vast throng, for whom the York Street Brass and Reed Band whiled away the intervening time by admirably rendering on their black-draped instruments the matchless melody endeared to us from the cradle by Speranza's plaintive muse. Special quick excursion vans and upholstered charabancs had been provided for the comfort of our country cousins, of whom there were large contingents. Considerable amusement was caused by the favoured Dublin street singers LNHN and MLLGN, who sang the night before Larry, was stretched in their usual mirth-provoking fashion. Our two inimitable drolls did a roaring trade with their broadsheets among lovers of the comedy element, and nobody who has a corner in his heart for real Irish fun without vulgarity will grudge them their hard-earned pennies. The children of the male and female foundling hospital who thronged the windows overlooking the scene were delighted with this unexpected addition to the day's entertainment, and a word of praise is due to the little sisters of the poor for their excellent idea of affording the poor, fatherless and motherless children a genuinely instructive treat. The visceral house party, which included many well-known ladies, was chaperoned by their excellencies to the most favourable positions on the grandstand, while the picturesque foreign delegation known as the Friends of the Emerald Isle was accommodated on a tribune directly opposite. The delegation, present in full force, consisted of Commendatore Bacci Bacci Benino Benone, the semi-paralysed doyen of the party, who had to be assisted to his seat by the aid of a powerful steam crane, Monsieur Pierre-Paul Petit-Paton, the grand joker Vladimir Pokert-Hankerchief, the arch-joker Leopold Rudolf von Schwarzenbad Hodenthaler, Countess Marha Viraga Kisassoni Putrapesti, Hiram Y. Bombust, Count Athanatos Karamalopoulos, Ali Baba Bakshish Rahat Locum Effendi, Signor Hidalgo Caballero Don Pecadillo y Palabras y Petronoster de la Malora de la Malaria. Hokopoko Harakiri, He Hung Chang, Olaf Cobber Kelson, Meinheer Trick van Trumps, Pan Polax Paddy Risky, Goosepond Pricklister Krachina Brichesic, Boris Hupinkoff, Herr Hurhaus Director President Hans Quickly Stuerli. National Gymnasium, Museum, Sanatorium and Suspensoriums, Ordinary Private Docent, General History Special Professor Dr. Kriegfried Uber Algemein. All the delegates, without exception, expressed themselves in the strongest possible heterogeneous terms concerning the nameless barbarity which they had been called upon to witness. An animated altercation, in which all took part, ensued among the FOTEI as to whether the 8th or the 9th of March was the correct date of the birth of Ireland's patron saint. In the course of the argument, cannonballs, scimitars, boomerangs, blunderbusses, stink pots, meat choppers, umbrellas, catapults, knuckle dusters, sandbags, lumps of pig iron were resorted to and blows were freely exchanged. The baby policeman, Constable McFadden, summoned by special courier from Boomerstown, quickly restored order and with lightning promptitude proposed the 17th of the month as a solution equally honourable for both contending parties. The ready-witted nine-footer's suggestion was at once appealed to all and was unanimously accepted. 
Constable McFadden was heartily congratulated by all the FOTEI, several of whom were bleeding profusely. Commendatore Benino Benone, having been extricated from underneath the presidential armchair, it was explained by his legal adviser, Avocato Pagamimi, that the various articles secreted in his 32 pockets had been abstracted by him during the affray from the pockets of his junior colleagues in the hope of bringing them to their senses. The objects, which included several hundred ladies' and gentlemen's gold and silver watches, were promptly restored to their rightful owners, and general harmony reigned supreme. Quietly, unassumingly, Rumbold stepped onto the scaffold in faultless morning dress, and wearing his favourite flower, the Gladiolus Cruentis. He announced his presence by that gentle Rumboldian cough which so many have tried unsuccessfully to imitate, short, painstaking, yet with all so characteristic of the man. The arrival of the world-renowned headsman was greeted by a roar of acclamation from the huge concourse, the vice-regal ladies waving their handkerchiefs in excitement, while the even more excitable foreign delegates cheered vociferously in a medley of cries. Hoch, Banzai, Elgin, Zivio, Chinchin, Pola, Cronia, Hip Hip, Viva, Ala, amid which the ringing Viva of the delegate of the Land of Song, a high double F recalling those piercingly lovely notes with which the eunuch Catalani beglamoured our great-great-grandmothers, was easily distinguishable. It was exactly seventeen o'clock. The signal for prayer was then promptly given by megaphone, and in an instant all heads were bared. The commendatory's patriarchal sombrero, which has been in the possession of his family since the revolution of Rienzi, being removed by his medical adviser in attendance, Dr. Pippi. The learned prelate, who administered the last comforts of holy religion to the hero martyr when about to pay the death penalty, knelt in a most Christian spirit in a pool of rainwater, his cassock above his hoary head, and offered up to the throne of grace fervent prayers of supplication. Hand by the block stood the grim figure of the executioner, his visage being concealed in a ten-gallon pot with two circular perforated apertures through which his eyes glowered furiously. As he awaited the fatal signal, he tested the edge of his horrible weapon by honing it upon his brawny forearm or decapitated in rapid succession a flock of sheep which had been provided by the admirers of his fell but necessary office. On a handsome mahogany table near him were neatly arranged the quartering knife, the various finely tempered disemboweling appliances, specially supplied by the world-famous firm of cutlers, Messrs. John Round and Sons, Sheffield, a terracotta saucepan for the reception of the duodenum, colon, blind intestine, and the appendix, etc., when successfully extracted, and two commodious milk jugs destined to receive the most precious blood of the most precious victim. The house steward of the amalgamated cats and dogs home was in attendance to convey these vessels, when replenished, to that beneficent institution. Quite an excellent repast, consisting of rashers and eggs, fried steak and onions done to a nicety, delicious hot breakfast rolls and invigorating tea had been considerately provided by the authorities for the consumption of the central figure of the tragedy, who was in capital spirits when prepared for death and evinced the keenest interest in the proceedings from beginning to end. But he with an abnegation rare in these our times, rose nobly to the occasion and expressed the dying wish, immediately acceded to, that the meal should be divided in aliquot parts among the members of the Sick and Indigent Roomkeepers Association as a token of his regard and esteem. The neck and non plus ultra of emotion were reached when the blushing bride-elect burst her way through the serried ranks of the bystanders and flung herself upon the muscular bosom of him who was about to be launched into eternity for her sake. 
the hero folded her willowy form in a loving embrace, murmuring fondly, Sheila, my own. Encouraged by disuse of her Christian name, she kissed passionately all the various suitable areas of his person which the decencies of prison garb permitted her ardour to reach. She swore to him, as they mingled the salt streams of their tears, that she would ever cherish his memory, that she would never forget her hero boy who went to his death with a song on his lips, as if he were but going to a hurley-match in Clonturk Park. She brought back to his recollection the happy days of blissful childhood together on the banks of Anna Liffey, when they had indulged in the innocent pastimes of the young, and, oblivious of the dreadful present, they both laughed heartily. All the spectators, including the venerable pastor, joined in the general merriment. That monster audience simply rocked with delight. But anon they were overcome with grief and clasped their hands for the last time. A fresh torrent of tears burst from their lacrimal ducts and the vast concourse of people, touched to the innermost core, broke into heart-rending sobs, not the least affected being the aged prebendary himself. Big, strong men, officers of the peace, and genial giants of the Royal Irish Constabulary were making frank use of their handkerchiefs, and it is safe to say that there was not a dry eye in that record assemblage. A most romantic incident occurred when a handsome young Oxford graduate, noted for his chivalry towards the fair sex, stepped forward and, presenting his visiting card, bank book, and genealogical tree, solicited the hand of the hapless young lady, requesting her to name the day, and was accepted on the spot. Every lady in the audience was presented with a tasteful souvenir of the occasion in the shape of a skull and crossbones brooch, a timely and generous act which evoked a fresh outburst of emotion. And when the gallant young Oxonian, the bearer, by the way, of one of the most high-honoured names in Albion's history, placed on the finger of his blushing fiancée an expensive engagement ring with emeralds set in the form of a four-leaved shamrock, the excitement knew no bounds. Nay, even the stern Provost Marshal Lieutenant Colonel Tomkin Maxwell French Mullen Tomlinson, who presided on the sad occasion, he who had blown a considerable number of sepoys from the cannon mouth without flinching, could not now restrain his natural emotion. With his mailed gauntlet he brushed away a furtive tear and was overheard by those privileged burghers who happened to be in his immediate entourage to murmur to himself in a faltering undertone, "'God!' Blimey, if she ain't a clinker, that there bleeding tart. Blimey, it makes me kind of bleeding cry straight it does when I see her, cause I think of my old mash tub what's waiting for me down Limehouse Way. So then the citizen begins talking about the Irish language and the corporation meeting and all to that and the Shanines that can't speak their own language and Joe chipping in because he stuck someone for a quid and Bloom putting in his old goo with his two-penny stump that he cadged off Joe and talking about the Gaelic League and the anti-treating league and drink, the curse of Ireland. Anti-treating is about the size of it. Gob, he'd let you pour all manner of drink down his throat till the Lord would call him, before you'd see the fraught of his pint. And one night, I went in with a fella into one of their musical evenings, song and dance about she could get up on a truss of hay, she could, my Maureen lay. And there was a fella with a ballyhooly blue ribbon badge spiffing out of him in Irish, and a lot of Colleen Bonds going about with temperance beverages and selling medals and oranges and lemonade and a few old dry buns gob flahoola entertainment. Don't be talking. Ireland sober is Ireland free. And then an old fella starts blowing into his bagpipes and all the gougers shuffling their feet to the tune the old cow died of. 
and one or two sky pilots having an eye around that there were no goings-on with the females hitting below the belt. So how and ever, as I was saying, the old dog, seeing the tin was empty, starts mousing around by Joe and me. I'd train him by kindness, so I would if he was my dog, give him a rousing fine kick now and again where it wouldn't blind him. Afraid he'll bite ya, says the citizen, jeering. No, says I, but he might take my leg for a lamppost. So he calls the old dog over. What's on you, Gary? says he. Then he starts hauling and mauling and talking to him in Irish and the old towser growling, letting on to answer, like a duet in the opera. Such growling you never heard as they let off between them. Someone that has nothing better to do ought to write a letter pro bono publico to the papers about the muslin order for a dog to like it at. Growling and grousing and his eye all bloodshot from the draft is in it and the hydrophobia dropping out of his jaws. End of section 24. Recorded by Methuselah.